As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So it was very much breaking news throughout the programme today, wasn't it, Jane? But but the uh, heavy, heavy, what do they call them? Oxford commas around those. Yeah, and I still don't know quite what an Oxford comma is. I, I might have got it wrong. Inverted comma? No. Is no. there a verted comma? Oh, look, I don't know. Look, all we really want to talk about is um, <laughs> Prince Harry's book. It is. Well, I say that, of course, but you've been boldly stating for quite some time now that you're not that interested. Well, I won't read it. I'm not going to buy well, it. Well, I'll give you a lender my copy. I've already said that. But uh, as we found out today, there's actually no need for anyone to buy a copy of The Blooming Thing. Because uh, you're just going to be... Did you have a Nerf gun in your house when your Nerf girls gun. were younger? Um, yes, we did have one of those. Okay, I feel already <laughs> like I'm at the eight-year-old's party yeah. where everyone's got a Nerf gun and they're just firing these foam bullets of Harry's personal life at me. It's too much, isn't it? And, well, is it too much or is it... I suppose, you know, he was paid a lot of money to write this book. So he must have known that by agreeing to a mighty, mighty fee for his memoir, he was going to have to deliver... Yeah, And I guess he probably has, but at what personal cost, I don't know. And I should say, I really want to just say that at least one person texted the programme today and just said, what about Prince Andrew? And I do think sometimes we are in real danger of forgetting about him. And I just think, let's every now and again just say, Prince Andrew, every time somebody has a go at Harry. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And thank you to whoever pointed that out. Uh, you can't bring stuff like what Harry is talking about back. You know, you can't reel it back in. It may feel incredibly good in the moment to get it all out there. I'm quite a fan of that, you know, getting it all out there. But he can't reel it back in and he's got kids now and I just don't know whether... I don't know whether I'd want my kids, Jane, to read quite so many personal details. I'm not sure I'm ever going to tell my kids how I lost my virginity. Can you imagine having that conversation? No. (laughs) Gather round. Gather round, girls. It's high time. You, of course not. <laughs> no, but that's so. That's what I mean. It just seems really. Um, I'm actually feeling a bit upset to know so much already, on a Thursday afternoon, four days before official publication day. But I mean, lots of celebrities um, spill their beans and tell their truth in their biographies, don't they? And their yeah. autobiographies. And and I'm I'm always amazed, like you, by the level of detail some people are routinely prepared to give up. But there is something different about a member a member of the royal family. And I probably sound ridiculously pompous saying that. There are people listening outside the UK who just think, oh, just celebrities. We don't give a... It's just a blurk. It's just a ginger blurk, what you're going on about. But here, there is a... And certainly when the Queen was, the late Queen was alive, um, there was genuine reverence for her. And I think it's... 
actually very telling, of course, that all this has happened after she's died. Um, and I don't know. I, I, we did have a conversation, didn't we, with Stig? Um, and we'll hear a little bit of that now, at, at which point I just began to get rather pompous and serious. It's so unlike me. And ask just what this family is for when they're just giving us a lot of opportunity to hear a lot of tawdry detail we probably don't need to know, as you as you say. And also, many of us are just re-examining our own family lives and thinking, well, we're not as bad, at least we're not as bad as them. <laughs> but they're, they're supposed to be this very important, dignified and unifying force. Yeah. I, I also just, more and more, I just think there's a different way that they could have done all of this. So they could have said the things that are, are you know, burning away inside them, mm. but they could have accompanied with it. And now I'm going to sound really pompous. They could have accompanied it with something that would be helpful to everybody else. So there is a conversation, obviously, about... Uh, army veterans and yeah, how they definitely. feel when they've left the theatre of war about the people they've killed. And Harry has talked about uh, killing 25 Taliban fighters and how he didn't see them as people. He saw them as chess pieces on a board. Uh, and that's a relevant conversation to have. Uh, but the, but there isn't any of that going on. You know, I mean, maybe that follows in the, you know, fantastically inclusive, helpful 27-part Netflix documentary series, free binder available with part one self-help magazine thing that they're going to bring out. But at the moment, it's not that. So and it's just a bit too much. It's the end of a very long week for us, Jane. Can you hear that? <laughs> it's the end of a very long... And it's only it's only the 5th of January. <laughs> so, um, I know as well, it, we had um, oh. we had a various funny text today from, from listeners who are, you know, in some cases, just fed up to the back teeth with it. And other people having claimed to have spotted editions of Harry's book out in the wild, only to then realise they didn't quite actually see the book. Um, but it is on sale in Spain. And uh, or, anyway, it's all very peculiar and, and discombobulating. Yeah. And Shall we get the thoughts of a, of a man? Yeah, a man. Yes, that's what we need. Bring in we, a man. We needed something. And not just any old man, but a top man. Stig Abel joined us on the programme today to do our hero and villain Now he is slot. Times Radio's breakfast jock. He is. Except he is the... <laughs> He's exactly the opposite of a breakfast jock. Um, I, when I started in local radio, the breakfast jocks were always, I mean, larger than life. A terrifying phrase, which I've always associated with utter idiots. I don't think Stig Abel has got his name in large italics down the side of his car. <laughs> I, I suspect he, I don't think he has a spoiler either, uh, but he is. I'd love it if he did. <laughs> be great if he had a personalised car. I'd love it. I would love it. Let's check, let's check up on that. Um, anyway, he is Times Radio's breakfast co-host um, alongside the esteemed Asma Mia. But um, Stig took part in our very successful Heroes and Villains slot this afternoon. And what he actually brought to the party was some deeper thoughts on the subject of sibling rivalry and Prince's, well, as we now know them, slightly unfortunately, uh, Willie and Harold. I'm going to tell you who my hero and villain is and allow people to make up their minds. And it is, of course, yes. oh. Harold and Willie. Mm. The oh. two together, because people, in my experience, tend to be either Team Harold or Team Willie. And therefore, in each of, the, of their minds, they would regard one as the hero, one as the villain. And this leak today, I don't know what you've made of it. We, we sort of came into it this morning. Um, it is a very striking story. I mean, the very... Basic. I mean, I think that, you know, you can feel sympathy probably for everyone in this. You might say these are quite damaged people for, for lots of very good reasons. The fact that Prince Harry wore a necklace that got damaged in a scrap with his brother, 
I think might tip him slightly towards villain territory. I have this view that men should never wear necklaces in any circumstances. Yeah, that's, um, that's but, so definitely think, the point to take from the whole story. That's stick. the one. Is that what you've taken from it? No, Very, is that, it is. Is, is. Is that just me? No, it is. It does also strike me this is the worst fight since Colin Firth and Hugh Grant in Bridget Jones' Diary. <laughs> uh, these sort of two 35-year-old men sort of slapping at each other in the kitchen, tearing each other's jewellery, damaging the dog bowl. Harry didn't want to tell Megan, so he told his therapist. There is definitely an element of farce in all of this, which I absolutely lustily enjoy. But I am told that we have to take this seriously as well. So on a serious point, I do think the world is dividing itself into teams. And people probably will say, you just heard it from, from one of your listeners there saying, a lot of people who got in touch with us today, I think were probably team William, would regard Harry as a villain. But the counter-argument is that you can understand why Harry has gone through an awful lot in his life, uh, might have a bit of antipathy towards the establishment as well. So I think that the world is splitting these people into heroes and villains. And, and um, I know my family, for example, my daughter, my eldest and my wife watched the wretched documentary, the si all six episodes of it, and they came out hugely keen. Yeah, Meghan you see, I, Harry. So I, think... I watched it too, and I, I take issue with your use of the, term, the adjective wretched. Why was it wretched? You haven't seen it, have you? No, my, my argument, I suppose, is that... Uh, and I think it clearly isn't wretched. Like I said, my, my wife and my daughter yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. I think there is a paradox at the heart of Harry's complaints here, which is that he is complaining about an intrusion into his own privacy at the same time as monetizing his own privacy. And I think that's difficult. He will say, understandably, if I don't talk, the space will be filled by lots of other people. And I think that's an argument you can take uh, as far as, as you want it to. But there is something slightly sort of annoyingly plaintive about it, I think, on, on all sides. Uh, but some people regard William as this sort of slightly unappealing, glistening figure who wants to paint himself as this great family man, and it's quite a good thing that Harry is showing a certain amount of sort of roughness uh, beneath it. My other theory, which I don't think you're going to agree with, is also that why do siblings have to get on after they reach adulthood? My eldest and my middle child, 13 and 11, they don't like each other. And I said, well, wait till you're 18... And then you never need to see each other again. Go out and enjoy your lives. You never have to cling to each other anymore. We have to sort of pretend that there's this great fantasy royal family that exists in our minds. I mean, who cares about that anyway? That William and Harry will get together in a, in a giant man hug at some point beneath Prince Charles's benevolent gaze. And I'm not sure that's how families need to work. If these, this, these siblings don't need to get on with each other, and if they don't get on, then they can just go mm. off their own separate ways. What do you think William should do now, Stig? Should he respond in any way or just maintain this silence? I, I, was, talking, I was talking to Roy and Nick about this, um, the Sunday Times of Royal Cross, and I don't know what he can do about it because he could get one of his posh mates to give him an interview in the same way Harry's doing with Tom Bradby. And, but there's so much stuff circulating that any journalist who interviews him, for example, would have to ask him lots of questions he wouldn't want to answer you would imagine. And if he starts denying, do you remember that doorstep of him where it was one of those very rare examples of a doorstep that works? Someone said to him, what, is your family racist? And he went, we are not a racist family. The, sort of, <laughs> the cardinal sin of someone in the public eye. Don't repeat the question back to someone. It just gives them a line. And of course he did that. So I don't know, what, I don't know if you agree. I don't know what he can do because if he denies one thing, he'll have to start talking about other things. But at the minute, it does feel that Harry is going to have and is having 
a series of free hits at him. Mm. And I'm not sure there's an easy way of him responding to that. Well, well, I mean, surely some people at some point are going to start asking the bigger question, which is, what are this family for? If they're for anything, it's for unifying the nation. It's about dignity. Uh, And this is undignified and shows a complete lack of unity at the heart of the family. I mean, am I just taking it all a bit too seriously, perhaps? Well, no, I agree with that. But that ship may well have sailed some time ago, this question of dignity in the royal family. And actually, if you did a list of all the scandals attached to the royal family, including their dad, dignity would be a very, very long way away as, an, as, a, as a concept, I think. And also, we're told we're supposed to be sad about this, but I'm not sad. I mean, it, it, I suppose it is objectively sad if a family doesn't get on, but this family doesn't necessarily mean anything greatly to me in, in any direction. And well, I kind then, of then what's it there, for? Well, the, 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 maybe it's good for maybe it's good for cultural identity. Maybe it's good for tourism and income. But it is a massive anachronism by anyone's standards, isn't it? I mean, the whole concept of it is is broadly ludicrous when you try and analyse it intellectually. It's there because it's there, and lots of people really value it. Lots of people really valued their gran, and that's the other thing that seems to be striking about this is that once the queen has died it feels that, that all bets are off. I wonder whether this could have happened when there was this great restrained, straining figure who everyone really respected. And now her dad is, her, their dad isn't really that person. So we are going to get a lot of un, undignified stuff. And I suspect you'll get loads of messages saying, I wish Harry would shut up. And then you'll get some saying, well, hang on a second. Harry's been badly treated by the family, badly treated by the media. Why doesn't he have a chance to, to stick the boot in himself? He was the one flung to the floor with his broken necklace... Now this is, uh, it's payback time. Yeah, don't forget the dog bowl as well. I like the detail of the dog dog bowl. bowl. Well, someone think of the dog bowl. However... However you look at it, it's a great story. Isn't it? I well, think I was the necklace say, and the dog bowl are, are great details. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's those kind of details that unfortunately may well stick down the ages. You know, we might forget. You know, when you learn all your history at school, and to be honest, I think you do yeah. forget all the dates of the Wars of the Roses and all of that kind of stuff, but you remember the strangest details. I mean, mostly about Henry VIII's sex life. Uh, if you asked anybody, <laughs> uh, you know, to talk about the royal families of old, I think the one thing that they can name is all those poor unfortunate women who suffered at his hand stig it's lovely to talk to you sorry sorry i don't want to interrupt you had something else to say just to say funnily enough i'm i'm just reading a great book about henry the eighth by antonia fraser and it's about the wives of henry the eighth and the details of of how he basically sent holbein the painter all around courts of europe to take drawings of women and then he came back and sort of picked them based on the drawings and then when, when the real when anne of cleves showed up she didn't look quite like the drawing and he got in a huff about it. It does sound like you've made that up, but actually it's true. So like, this has been a ridiculous uh, institution for hundreds of years. <laughs> OK, we'll leave it. <laughs> it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much Looking indeed. forward to Stig's commentary on the coronation. <laughs> uh, coming up, today's big interview is with the crime author Nadine Matheson. She'll talk about her new book, The Binding Room. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We're talking to the crime writer and former lawyer Nadine Matheson. She has written a new book called The Binding Room and her previous book was also a big success. It was called The Jigsaw Man. And she's got two more books planned, all featuring the central character, D.I. Angelica Henley, who is the head of the Serial Crime Unit. I've got that right, I think, Nadine. It is Serial yeah, you've Crime. you got that right. Yeah, 100%. Now, is that a fictional unit? It is completely fictional. Um, I've had readers obviously come back to me and ask me if it's a real unit. But no, it's a completely fictional unit. It was based, I based it in a police station, Greenwich Police Station, which closed down a few years ago. But it's, yeah, it's a unit that I came up with all of my own oh well look I don't want to patch I was about to say well done (laughs) but you I've I've read a couple of interviews with you in which you talk about being serially patronized and underestimated throughout your working life both as a writer and as a lawyer Uh, tell us more about that I think um in the early days being a lawyer and you know going to the magistrate's court I think it was more a case that people never actually thought I was the solicitor representing the client. They always thought I was always maybe a client's relative or a girlfriend, or maybe I was working for probation. They never actually thought that I was the solicitor. So it's obviously, you know, later on, the more um, the more I became involved in my legal career and the more I advanced, and obviously that kind of died away. But then in addition to being a writer, I think I've just found that um, people never assume that I'm I'm going to write the things that I write. I think just based on my personality and how I come across, they don't think that I'm going to be writing such a um, deep. What What do you <laughs> think people are expecting you to write? I thought initially they thought I'd immediately write a legal thriller because of my background um, as a lawyer. But the binding room is a police procedural, and that I've been I qualified as solicitor back in 2006, so it's nearly 17, well, 17 years I've been qualified for. And I've always defended, I've never prosecuted. So for me, you know, writing a police procedural, it was a way to actually, I suppose, work an investigation from the ground up and to build a case. Whereas as a defence solicitor, I'm always, I suppose, looking for holes in Mm. a case. In the prosecution yeah. Do you know what? I could hear the lawyer in you sometimes, though. There was one particular bit that I really loved reading. Uh, you wrote, Henley wasn't surprised. It wasn't the first time she had seen a victim of sexual assault almost apologise for their abuser's behaviour. Yeah. Being so disempowered could lead to undeserved thoughts of self-blame. And as I was reading that, I thought, that is a, a woman who has seen exactly that actually meted out, you know, from a client's perspective or whatever it was. Is it very satisfying to be able to write these truths in fiction now? No, most definitely, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about how the criminal justice centre service works and also the impact that it has on victims and, you know, family members and defendants also who are involved in the criminal justice system. So, you know, by writing The Binding Room and also The Jigsaw Man, I think it's my opportunity to, you know, open the truth and show how, you know, realism of being involved in the criminal justice system. And also, and most importantly, the impact, because a lot of victims, you know, I've seen, you know, they will blame themselves. You know, they'll try and find like like an excuse. But... Really, you know, there's, there's, there's no excuse. You know, this has happened to them. 
and they have to be open and accepting um, of that. I wonder whether I'm sure you well you've you've been a lawyer so you've clearly been in many courtrooms mm. over the years. I I watched a, a case at the Old Bailey must be about ten years ago now, uh, Nadine, and I was really really struck by how it was essentially like two completely separate worlds colliding, the legal profession on the one hand and it was a man in the dock on the other. And in any other form of so-called real life, they would never have been in the same room. They were speaking mm. they were speaking English, but not the same version of what we know to be English. It was such an extraordinary contrast that I, I felt very uncomfortable about the whole thing. Did, did all that occur to you when you were doing it full-time, your lawyering work? I found that, I mean, I've been asked a lot about how, you know, working on these cases, how it impacts me. And I think with a lot of lawyers, whether you're prosecuting or defending you have to be able to compartmentalise yourself. So you, you can't, it's, it's a lot of human emotion. I mean, there's so much going on in the courtroom. There's so much going on with defendants and with victims that, you know, for a normal person, you know, an everyday person, a lay person walking into a courtroom, when you hear all this, you know, out in the open, it can be like discombobulating. It can make you feel uncomfortable. So I think for, you know, any anyone working in the legal profession, you have to be able to, compartmentalize yourself but in that in that arena in that courtroom as you said you know these are two areas of life that you know these two people have never ever engaged you know defendants lawyers police officers and for defense lawyers I think the task for us is always that you know we have a job to do and it's just and it's remaining focus on that job on representing your client mm. And does it mean that you have to try to put yourself in their shoes um, and appreciate that they have their own story and their own explanation? They're not just, quotes, bad people. They're just people, really, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I also teach criminal law and advocacy to trainee solicitors, and I always tell them that. I mean, one of the things I've always found fascinating about criminal law and what I try and put across in my books is that you can have 20 people all charged with the same offence, but everyone's got their own story everyone's got their own socio-economic circumstances you know every case is so individual you know the reasons why they're in in the court are not going to be the same as person a in comparison um to person b so that is one thing that it, it, it constantly um sticks with me so in a sense you have to not necessarily put yourself in their shoes but you have to be aware of everything that's going along in their lives and not just think of them as cliches and or stereotypes because if you do that you're not representing them fairly. How did you come to writing I know that you won a competition didn't you you'd seen was it something advertised on Twitter uh, that, I did. yes well I mean how fantastic that that platform has some meaning uh, at some stage <laughs> uh, but, but, but obviously you know you, you've now got two extremely successful careers uh, but but a writer has always been a writer, I always think. Did, did, did you feel that you had to go into the law and that writing would always bubble up later? No, I think, I mean, it's just a, right, I think writers are always writers. So I've written, like, short stories from when I was a young age. I've loved books from when I was a young age. I always had my head in a book. But I think I've said before, growing up, I never knew that being a writer, it sounds an odd thing to say, I never knew that write, being a writer could actually be a career because you're not taught that as an option when you're in school. So for me, my option was what I wanted to do was to be a lawyer. So my going through school, college, um, sticks from college, university, my focus was on becoming a lawyer, but I always still kept that love of books and I was always still 
writing, but I think there came a point, um, I think around two, 2015, I think it was when I entered the competition, and I was I started writing more, but it was just something inside me, and I, I wanted to tell a story, and the competition came up on Twitter, um, I was off sick from work, I was recovering from an operation, and it asked for 5,000 words of a crime story, and I sent off 5,000 words of a crime story, and I won this competition. So it, it, I think it, what it did is it gave me the confidence. Yeah, you've made that sound so easy. Novel. So easy, and I, I suspect it isn't, Nadine, because um, your 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 sense of discipline is, is is pretty impressive. I mean, the fact that you've you've already written um, at least two of the four books you've got in mind, and I suspect yeah. there are a few more plots whirring around in your head at there the are. moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you dream about plots? Do you, I mean, is there anything any t- any tips you can give the rest of us who would love one I... day to write a book? <laughs> I don't think I dream about plots, but I do. You do find you'll come up with ideas in the most strange of the circumstances. Like, you know, I'm just washing up and I'm putting cutlery away, and a plot would come to me. But I think I find a lot of my ideas just looking at the world around me and the world that I that I work in. Um, as I said, with the binding room, that came because I was in the courtroom and I was, and there was a court case going on next door to me. With the jigsaw man, I mean that involves a serial killer, and I never ever represented a serial killer and I've always said I think that was kind of like my bucket list of cases I would like to have um, worked on but you know inspiration comes from all from all around so mm. I just think you know look at look at look at newspapers look at the news look yeah. around you and that will always spark off an idea and just work from there. Now I know that the Jigsaw Man has been optioned by television that can it cover a, a multitude of sins that sentence but do, <laughs> do, do you have anyone in mind to play D.I. Henley? I do. I have Naomi Harris in okay. mind to play yeah. D.I. Henley. So she's always been the first person um, who's come to my head. But I would love to see it on the TV screen. Well, I mean, I, I know story. these things can take forever, but how close mm. might it be to actually getting on the telly? Um, I know the treatment's been written, so I think it's currently being like, pitched to station so we'll see yeah, okay. it, could, it could be anything from six months to a decade away the days when not a decade. the days when you kill somebody in your fiction <laughs> <laughs> is that a good day is that a weird day do you go off and have a cup of tea afterwards how do you treat that I treat it as any other day I mean there are moments it's funny though there are moments when I had plan to kill off a character from the minute I sat down and started the book but then I get halfway through the book and I I kind of grow to like them so I I can get a bit of sympathetic towards them and I keep them on but oh let them live <laughs> yeah, I let them live but there are days the ones who are definitely going to die it's just it's just another Tuesday Oh, Nadine, and you seem such a nice person. I don't know. I'm a lovely person. Yeah, no, I, I think I think I believe you. Um, so with with a, a series of books like this, it's always quite hard, I imagine, for the writer to retain the interest of people who loved the character first time round, but also welcome new joiners. You, you've got to bear in mind yeah. what people already know and what people need to know to enjoy the book. That must be hard. It is hard because what you don't want to do, you don't want to just keep rehashing mm. like the same old plot. And you don't want to be repeating yourself. Um, so I think that was that was always the trick where we were writing the binding and we didn't just want to repeat ex- chunks from the Jigsaw Man for the new readers because obviously that's going to upset and annoy the old readers who are following along on the journey. So I think for Henley, I'm always discovering new things about her when I'm writing her. So when I wrote the third book, I discovered more about her. So she's still fresh and exciting 
to me and also the other characters in the book. So that allows me to keep her story, I think, unique and also authentic. And then also just working on finding a really good case for her to work on. Because if you've got a good case that the readers are invested in, then they'll follow you through to the next book. Nadine Matheson there and her book, The Binding Room, is out now if you've got the stomach for it. That opening bit actually is quite frightening. Yeah, it is frightening. But I think you said it's the sort of goriest bit in the book. Yeah. So if that don't let that put you off if you pick it up in a bookshop, because if you enjoy a police procedural, then you'll get a lot of a lot of um, satisfaction. I was going to say joy. (laughs) Satisfaction out of this book. You've got to be worried if you're getting joy. And I really hope Nadine gets her wish and gets Naomi Harris to play D.I. Henley, because I I could see that working. I, I, I don't understand why some books get picked up for television and others don't. And they have so called optioned um, her first book, The Jigsaw Man. Um, but as you know, it can just take forever for that to actually happen. Yes, and there's something interesting about options as well, because uh, a lot of books get optioned and, and all it does is put them in the vault of a television production company and for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and it's so nobody else can get hold of them in case that best-selling author goes on to stratospheric heights. Mm. So sometimes it's not actually as good as it might sound for the author. It kind of tucks them away in a dark room. Mm. So I hope uh, I hope this one doesn't, because apart from anything else, Deptford is a very interesting part of South well, London. I would I'd like I, to see that on the TV. Yes, I, I actually thought Nadine made a very powerful case for there being more stuff written by people who still live in the area that they're writing about. So they actually are living and breathing. And I, I think it's fair to say that Deptford is a more uncelebrated part of of London, isn't it? Um, it is, but also, um, and I think she she kind of references this throughout the book, uh, it's it's had quite a bit of gentrification recently, right. but it's also been home to lots and lots of different communities over the years, lots of different immigrant communities, uh, lots of uh, lots of, of deprivation, actually, uh, battered up against really extraordinary wealth in places like Blackheath. So fantastic scenery, uh, uh, you know, for a, for a TV kind of background. Well, look out for the books. Um, the Jigsaw Man and The Binding Room are available now. Um, now, we've got some good guests next week. Crikey, we really have. One of my TV favourites, Michaela Strachan. Uh, Hunk, Ross Kemp, that's just his job. Do you think that's what it says on his passport? If it doesn't, Hunk. it should. Is he talking about his shipwrecks? I think he might be. Because he's done a lot. He's been very clever, Ross Kemp, with his career. He's attached himself to some interesting projects. Well, he has. So he's done gangs, yeah. hasn't he? He went into prisons. Yep. Uh, and it, That's it, partly because he can stand, we know, with his arms folded like that, with all his upper arms on view. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't mess with him. No. You wouldn't be able to get past him. Well, of course, he knows a little bit about sibling rivalry, doesn't he? Oh, we can ask him about that. So whether he and Steve McFad are as uh, close as they once were. Yeah, but I think he is talking about his latest dives, isn't he? Uh, why do you like Michaela Strachan so much? We could ask her about the two-legged fox. We could. I think Michaela Strachan is one of the um, underestimatedly brilliant live television presenters mm. because um, I'm not a massive... You know, I, If I'm really honest with you, and this is going to lose me so many admirers, <coughs> uh, I struggle a bit with some of those wildlife documentaries, but I love Chris and Michaela out in some woods in their padded anoraks, just assessing what went on the night before and watching all the films. I think they have great banter between the two of them. I think there's a a slight edge as well in their relationship, which I really like. And neither appear in any way auto-cue dependent. 
I, I just think they're really knowledgeable and interesting. Excellent. Yeah. Apart from that, I don't rate her. Yep. Good answer. Uh, Kathy you has asked. sent us. An, no, well, I asked because I've actually heard you say all of that before and I wanted to hear you say it again because I agree. No, but well, sometimes you've got to prod, haven't you? Because I, you know, I, I am in the very, very lucky and fortunate position of hearing a lot from you, but not everybody. <laughs> heard it too. I'm still in recovery from reading that headline she used me like a stallion. I'm not sure I'm ever going to be fully well again. Right, carry on Fee. I know that was the one that got me. I was also eating a donut at the time so you can imagine. It was a a very very difficult half hour of the show that. Uh, This one comes from Cathy who says on the subject of maths I really felt compelled to get in touch although it was a while ago now I seem to remember doing relatively okay in my maths exams although it was not my natural bent and I really needed to study hard in preparation for them. My thoughts about maths as a subject though are that it's very easy to dread failure and the reason is this 36 times 192 for example is only ever going to have one answer so anything else is just wrong whereas explaining the relationship between George and Lenny from Of Mice and Men is always going to produce a myriad of answers from students and it would be difficult to prove that any of them are wrong. I think that it's fundamentally the reason why so many people are terrified of maths. Also, in my experience, maths teachers are boring old farts. I've got a bit of a thing for Ramesh Ranganathan and would no doubt have paid attention if he'd been teaching me back in the day. Keep on doing what you're doing. Very best regards. And you're absolutely right, Cathy. It is exactly that. And I think... When you're in class, you know, back in the day where you had to put your hand up uh, and give the answer mm. or you were picked on to give the answer, yeah. maths made you scared because you yeah. were either right or wrong. Mm. And it was you're very exposed in those moments, aren't yeah. you? And it's funny, they don't really crop up much in adult life in quite the same way, do they? You don't get picked on in meetings, do you? Well, I think in some companies you do. Yeah. you do. And I think Fiona Bruce can give, you know, some of the audience a question time a right old straight eye, can't she? It's on so late. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to chip in and with my own experience of that, but I'm afraid they'll need to move it a little earlier for me to be able to fully participate in a in a full-blooded discussion about question time. Uh, this is from Victoria. She's in bed with COVID. An extra Christmas present from my husband, she says. Oh, for heaven's sake, Victoria, get rid of him. What a nuisance. Uh, you mentioned your confusion about Pointless yesterday. Zero is the best score. You see, the premise of the show is to get the answer right, but choose the question you think fewest people will have answered correctly. It's such a good idea, that, isn't it? Why didn't either of us think of this and make a fortune? I don't know. Well, because we would have thought of it and then we would have made ourselves unthink it because it would seem so stupid to us. Anyway, Victoria goes on. All my knowledge of the periodic table comes from watching Pointless. I spent a couple of years at a high school in Canada and it wasn't there. Their education system works in semesters. So we did biology for a semester, then didn't do it again that year and just moved on to chemistry and then physics for the last semester. This was back in the 70s. I came back to the UK for the final year of O-levels and I'd missed a huge chunk of the syllabus, including the periodic table. So thank you, Pointless. By the way, I did scrape seven O-levels, but left after the lower sixth, as I still felt I was missing great chunks of education and was dropping behind. I got an open university degree in my 30s in humanities with history of art, hoping to do my master's once I retire in a couple of years. I think most of my knowledge has been learnt since I left school. I'll stop pointlessly rambling now, but Newfoundland is pronounced Newfoundland. Just thought I'd add that to the mix. Brilliant. Thank That's you. That's the first syllable first. 
theory, it is, isn't it? It is, it in is action. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I always uh, think I just have huge admiration for people who do an open university degree because mm. uh, it's so it's so hard to propel yourself and keep yourself going, isn't it, when you're doing that kind of work at home without the timetable of going into lectures and all of that stuff around you, people around you. I think, broadly speaking, I just think I realise now that education was wasted on me as a young person. And I think it's actually university education, which I was you know, very fortunate to get, is to a degree wasted on the to a degree, no pun intended, wasted on the young. Yeah. I mean, I looked at my younger daughter's options. She's doing history and politics, and every single one of them looked interesting. I thought, well, I'd love to. I would love to attend oh, some of these lectures. There are some cracking courses available oh, yeah, now. Really, really good ones. And um, you know, I I did English, just just English, and the the course I did went from Anglo-Saxon to John Updike in three years, sort of chronologically. <sighs> Yeah, I think that could have been it could have been done differently. Yeah, um, if you could go back now, oh, I would go what, back. Now. What would you do? I'd have picked. I I didn't. I was uh, because the the women, the young women who picked the feminist courses were terrifying. Um, they had Doc Martins and they'd been to Greenham Common and they were just more confident and more worldly than me. And I just didn't dare. I just couldn't compete with them. So I didn't do any of the female writers. Or I just ploughed through the most conservative possible options because I just wanted to pass and, frankly, get out. And um, I really bitterly regret that now. I'd love to go back and do all the all the female writers of yeah and really properly probe them yes what about you do you have any regret uh so i definitely wouldn't study the subject that i did at university was which was uh, classical history, history and philosophy yes. um because i'd done i kind of done that at a day level actually it felt like an extension of my a levels um i mean i'm glad i did that at the time but i've i'm absolutely fascinated by uh some of the courses you can do around modern culture so I saw it may actually just have been somebody's PhD, but it was about the influence of the modern American sitcom uh, on uh, real domestic relationships. And I thought something like that would be fantastic. What? So something like I Love Lucy? Yes. No, no, even more modern. Okay. So things like Frasier, Seinfeld, Modern Family, Blackish, all of those things, how they seep into the consciousness and might actually be changing people's relationships. That's not a course, that's just watching telly. No, but I love that kind of, uh, there's something over there. But that's how it would be in a newspaper. That's it would. Not, not the Times, but... Uh... But tabloidy. It's actually, uh, you know, it's it's that blend of uh, fact and fiction. Isn't These it? days, you can do a degree in little mix. It's <laughs> disgusting. It's wonderful. <laughs> but I draw the line at the sugar babes. Okay. Well, uh, it was also the day we both tasted a low calorie donut. <laughs> it's a low calorie donut because someone had cut a hole in it. Are you not familiar with the concept of ring donuts? No, I just thought that oh God, Krispy Kreme back to Prince Harry. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> had changed their recipe, <sighs> taken out some of the sugar, taken out some of the bad things, and provided you with a low calorie alternative. But basically, I mean, you could just anyone could do that. I could go into a shop tomorrow with my little round hacksaw and take out the middle of a Hovis loaf, and I'd have a <laughs> low calorie piece of toast. There you go. You've just invented something. Well done. Get out there and make a fortune. Uh, last night I was I was watching telly, it's so unlikely, and I just looked at the tree and just thought, what the hell is a tree doing in my front room? And I just thought, right, that's it. And I just went, it was all gone. Within 10 minutes, I'd gone down to the cellar, got my big decorations bag, shoved everything back in there every single year, I think. I'll just put the fairy lights in nicely so I don't have a problem. I'll wrap up all the balls. Did I? No. Thump. 
No. Mm. Anyway, the tree was out in the corner of the road. Like every area, our street has an informal Christmas tree dumping zone. And in my case, I had to go out in my slippers and drag, and I had my pie jam bottoms on as well, drag it across the street. What, you went out with a Christmas tree topless? I say, Jane, gosh. <laughs> Neighbourhood Watch did give me a call this morning, actually. I'd... <laughs> could they, could they, these events be connected? Anyway, back to stallions. Oh, please, OK. Uh, have a lovely couple of days. More of this tosh uh, coming your way on Monday. You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live, uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.